going to be all throughout the book of Exodus. Exodus 6 is kind of somewhere where we're going to start. So if you have a Bible and you want to make your way um, to a, a starting point there in the book, and there in the Bible, Exodus 6 would be a good starting point. We have been spending our Wednesday nights looking at different characters in the Bible. And uh, so once we finished going through the books of the Bible, then we pivoted and now we're looking at different characters of the Bible. We're looking at men and women and we're looking at, uh, I think there's some like 50, 55 characters that you see that are very prominent in both the Old Testament and the New Testament and we're looking at them and we're asking three questions as we have been the last several weeks we were asking the question of who who were they as far as biographical information, factual information about them who were they, why do we know them and so maybe the Sunday school stories or maybe the Bible stories or the things that stick out to us as far as the highlights of their life, why do we know them and then the third question we ask is what lessons do they teach us? So every every character we're looking at because not only does God reveal his, his word to us so that we know about God, he reveals his word to us so we know about ourselves but also he reveals his word to us as a means of instruction and it's a means of teaching and it's there for us to look at and so when we have these characters in scripture there are things that we can learn and know about these men and women that have come before us on how we might be more faithful, how we might be more obedient to God, and how God works in the lives of these people, and how God still works in the life of us. So, we've gone through Adam and Eve, and we've got through Abraham, and we've got through Isaac, and we've got through Jacob, and we've got through Joseph, and so tonight we're going to be on the character of Moses. These are kind of taking in chronological order. Now, I realize on Sunday morning, um, we're right here in the thick of the book of Exodus, and so you may say, well, I'm kind of tired of hearing about Moses. Well, we really haven't done very much conversation, very much study about the person of Moses. We've been looking at how God has set apart the people of Israel, and Moses has been involved. We really haven't looked at Moses as the individual. So... We get to him and kind of we started Genesis and we're working our way through. So when it comes to the character of Moses, three questions. Who was he? Why do we know him? And what lessons does he teach us? So we start with the first question, and this is kind of biographical. If you think back to the last weeks, what we've done, we're asking kind of biographical, factual data about Moses. So like questions like, who was Moses? As far as who his daddy was, who his mama was, who his spouse was, who his children were. What do we know about Moses? He was a Levite. Okay. He was a Levite. You might know his father's name. Okay? So that's why you're in Exodus chapter 6. So if you look down there, let your eyes wander down all the way to verse 20, you will see not only his father's name, but his mother's name. Anybody see that? Exodus 6.20 kind of gives us a genealogy. In fact, it may, you may have the title of it in your Bible. The genealogy of Moses and Aaron. I'm put Moses and Aaron together because they are siblings. Right? So you get down there to chapter 6 and verse 20 and you see Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. 
and the year of life, the year of the life of Amram being 137 years. So we get this idea when we think about who was Moses. We understand his dad. His dad's name was Amram. His mother's name was Jochebed. Something that I find a little bit. A little bit interesting is it said Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister. Anyways, so we, we so we keep on going. So we think about okay who he was. Now, what do we know about his siblings? Moses have siblings. Yes, he had Aaron. All right. Who else? And Miriam. Did he have any others? So I don't see anywhere where the Bible records that he had any other siblings than that. So we know he had a sister because you go all back to chapter 2 of Exodus and we see where his, when his mother puts him in the, in the basket in the Nile River that the sister is there. You don't see the sister again until later on in the story. You get to know about Aaron because you get to chapter 4 and verse 14 and when Moses is saying to God, God I can't speak, I'm not that eloquent of a speaker, I really don't, I'm not in the position to go stand in front of Pharaoh, God says I'm going to um, call your brother Aaron and he will go and he will be your spokesman as you come in and you pronounce the things of me. Beyond that, we don't, as far as I know of, we don't have anything recorded in Scripture about any more siblings besides just Aaron, who was the oldest, Miriam, also the middle child, and then you have Moses. So we have, we know that his father's Amram, his mom is Jochebed, he has a brother named Aaron, he has a sister named Miriam, was he married? Was Moses married? Yes. Yes. Okay. Married to who? A woman. That's a yes, ma'am. That that that's that's a that's a good start. Does anybody know what her name was? Chapter two and verse twenty-one. See, the really cool thing about the Bible is most of the questions that I ask are in the Bible. You just gotta you just gotta know where to look at it in the Bible. So. Zipporah, that's right. So he uh, he marries Zipporah. Now was she a Hebrew? No, she was a what? Close, not a Mennonite. Did you say Mennonite? <laughs> close. She was a Midianite. A Midianite. That's that's close. It's 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 rather in the same family. Okay, they just separated a little bit. All right. So she was a Midianite. So he married Zipporah because whenever he is on the run from Egypt, Pharaoh's looking for his head. Remember, he gets out there in the wilderness, um, and he ends up staying with Jethro, who was a prince of Midian. He had a whole bunch of daughters, and it says in chapter two that. When he got there, that uh, says in verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And so, you know, he had Zipporah as a wife. Did he have any other wives? Yes. Okay. Where do we know that from? Later in the story. Later in the story, okay? So, so there's a little bit of controversy about this. Because if you go all the way, you fast forward all the way to Numbers chapter 12, which is where Mark is talking about. You get over to Numbers chapter 12, and there is a scene in the first few verses of Numbers chapter 12 where it addresses that Aaron 
Aaron and Miriam questioned the authority of Moses. Particularly, they had a problem with the Cushite woman that he had taken as his wife. Now the theme, the focus of the passage is about them questioning the authority of Moses. Moses is saying, I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this. And they're like, who put you in charge? Why are you telling us what to do? And they're questioning the authority of Moses. And you remember in the story there in Numbers 12, Miriam ends up getting leprosy on her because she's questioning Moses. Moses intercedes on her behalf to God and God says, well, I'm going to grant you your petition, but she's going to have leprosy for a few days and then she's going to be put out of the the fellowship of the people. Then after that, then I'll let her back in and I will heal her. But there in Numbers chapter 12, it talks about him taking as a wife a Cushite woman. So we can imply that he had two wives. Nothing else is said about the Cushite woman. Um, We don't have a name of the Cushite woman. Really not a lot of information about the Cushite woman. But we assume that because we know that there is a woman by the name of Zipporah from Midian and then you have the Cushite woman, they must be two different people, right? That is the majority of Bible scholars, the learned experts. But there's some out there that claim that the women are the same. And they will go back and they will look at that Cush and Midian geographically almost identical in their place. And so they claim, and you have a few scholars that will claim that when they talk about her being a Cushite, it is a derogatory term, and they are talking about Zipporah, but they are talking about her in a derogatory way, and so when they talk about the Cushite, it is a derision of the same woman. Now, Does it matter to us? I don't think it matters to us. And does it make that big of a difference in how we look at Scripture? It doesn't make that big of a difference in how we look at Scripture. Who do I think is right and who do I think is wrong? I I don't care. But at the same time, I want you to be aware that there is. There is different ideas out there. And unfortunately, in 2023, if someone has something that they think they can write about biblically and sell books then they will write about it biblically and sell books. And there's so so many different varieties of ideas and theories out there. So one idea is out there is that Mary or that Moses somewhere along the way took a second wife, the Cushite woman and then there's some theories out there that says no, this is the same woman as Zipporah. But other than that, we really don't know whether he had one wife, excuse me, or two wives. Did Moses have any children? Did he have any children? Two. Two? Okay. You have two. Do we do we know? Okay. Eleazar. Okay. Yeah, that's that's great. Okay. So when you get to chapter two and verse twenty-two, it says that the oldest one was named Gershom. Alright. And then you see him come back into the scene whenever they're headed back to Egypt and comes about that Gershom was not circumcised and the death angel showed up. She, uh, Zipporah, circumcised Gershom. So it talks about there in chapter 2 and verse 22 about Gershom. But then where do we get the idea? Where, where do we see Eleazar? Anybody know? That's right. That's right. 
Okay, so you get to Exodus 18, and in Exodus 18, um, Jethro comes to Moses, and he is bringing his wife Zipporah, and he is bringing his two sons. Now, it doesn't—I don't—I haven't found anywhere in Scripture where it talks about any more than the two. It just simply says the sons of Moses, and you already know Gershom, and then you get over to. Exodus 18 and verse 4, and it talks about Jethro showed up with Eliezer. And so we get this idea that he had two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. Now there's something that I want to make sure you're aware of, is that sometimes there can be just a slip of the tongue, because Aaron had a son named Eliezer. And the way you would spell his name was E-L-E-A-Z-A-R. Eleazar factors in later in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy because after Aaron's older two sons, Nadab and Abihu, get smoked for disobeying the Lord and they die from being burned alive, then after that, the person that replaces Aaron and that priestly line is Aaron's son, Eleazar. Okay? So you might look at some of the wording and you might get these two mixed up and you might think Eliezer, and I might not even be pronouncing it right, but you might think Eliezer is Moses' son. And just understand you got two brothers that named both of their sons very, very similar names. Alright? So think about who was Moses. We know his daddy's name, know his mama's name, brother's name, sister's name, wife's name. Maybe not the second wife's name. Um, we had two boys, Gershom and Eleazar. Do we know anything about other factual information about who was Moses? Well, we know that he was found in the rushes by the Pharaoh's daughter. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. So how old was Moses when he died? Anybody know? 930. 137. So you gotta get out of the book of Exodus. You gotta go all the way over to Numbers. And you get over to Numbers chapter 34. No, no, not numbers. I lied to you. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 34 and verse 7 says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. So, Moses lived for 120 years. Now what I find, now what I think is interesting when you come to the life of Moses, and most of this you see out of Acts chapter 7, whenever Stephen is on trial, he's getting ready to be stoned, and he goes back and he gives the account of Moses and the people. This is where you get the 40 years and 40 years, because you're not going to find it in the book of Exodus. You get it from the account of Stephen. So you go over to Acts chapter 7, and as Stephen gives the account, what he shows you is, is that Moses, like you said, Granny, was in the bulrushes, was found by Pharaoh's daughter, raised um, after he was weaned, was raised in Pharaoh's house um, up to about the age of 40. At the age of 40, he decided he was going to go and be with his people, the Hebrew people. Right about that time, he kills the Egyptian taskmaster, hides him in the sand. That is found out. 
Pharaoh says, you're going to die. He runs. He winds up. This is Exodus 2 with Jethro, the Midianite. He spends 40 years in the wilderness tending the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro, living a life out there. And at 80 years old is where you get to Exodus chapter 3 and you have the burning bush and God sends him back to Egypt. Goes back to Egypt at 80 years old and he brings the people out. And for the next 40 years, he is leading the people through the wilderness only to die. We'll look at that towards the end of our time this evening. Only to die right there on the brink of entering into the promised land. So yes, he lived to 120. But you think back of his life, it's pretty much broken up in three segments. His life in the Egyptian palace, if you will, his life in the Midian Desert, and then his life of leading half a million plus people through the wilderness. What you don't see there is retirement, lake house, right? You you don't see some of that stuff there. But but that's when you think about his life, it was broke up. You know, there's some people that that get towards... um, the, uh, what do they call that, the fourth quarter of life? You know, and they're just like, I just want to kind of coast. And then you look at Moses and you're like, the guy did not get a break. And in fact, if you go back over there to Deuteronomy 34, something that I think is really cool about the way that, the, uh, that w- Moses was described. It says he was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his figure unabated. The idea that at 120, he was just as just as strong, just as able-bodied as he was at 80 years old. Because God had given him the strength and God had given him the wherewithal. So, so, that's who he was. Now, let's ask the question, why do we know him? Give me some, give me some stories that you've heard or give me some things that stick out to you of why do we know about Moses? The Yes, yeah. That, there's not a wrong answer. It's just part of the Red Sea. Part of the Red Sea. The golden calf. Golden calf. Water from the rock. Water from the rock. God hid him the first forty years. Okay. Lead him out of Egypt. Yeah, he led him out of Egypt. That's right. At one point, he was so in touch with God that his face shone. They had to put a, well, this is my version. They had to put a pillowcase over his head because people couldn't stand the glow. Well, as a veil, I talk, I think of it as a pillowcase. So I think that's how my mind works. Do what, ma'am? God considered him his friend. Yes. Yes. Right. Sure. Yes. When he ran from the hell, he ended up at a well. Yes. <laughs> okay. And all the plagues and the staff. Right. So Moses is one of the most popular people, one of the most popular figures in the Old Testament. His name is used. 767 times in the Old Testament alone. That's how prominent he is. He is still a very prominent figure in Jewish tradition and Jewish religion today. The Jewish people in Israel, even today, still consider Moses 
to be their spiritual father because they see Moses as who God gave the law to. And that is where God then handed down the law and the law has now been handed down through generations to them and so they see Moses as being a a spiritual father, if you will. So, so a few things that I wrote down as far as why do we know about Moses um, goes back all the way to the river. He was saved by God. If you think back, uh, we looked at this months ago on Sunday mornings, but you think back, he was supposed to have died. In fact, Pharaoh had given the command. All the male the Hebrew children are to die. And so whenever Jochebed has Moses, she says, I don't want to kill him. She puts him in the basket and puts him in the river. Who knows what's going to happen to him? He could have easily have capsized and drowned. He could have easily have been eaten by... By gators, whatever he, he what, could have, crocodiles, whatever it could have been. Who knows? But for whatever reason, in the providence and the plan of God, God just so happens to, he is there in the basket, he's among the bulrushes, just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter is coming down and bathing, just so happens that Pharaoh finds the basket, looks in the basket, sees the child, decides to have pity on the child, decides to take the child as room, decides to let the child be nursed by his biological mother until he's weaned and then brings the child into the house and somehow we just move right on to the story in Exodus 2 and we skip the whole part of wonder what Pharaoh said about all this. But can you imagine about Pharaoh's daughter going home and saying, Daddy, guess what? It's not, it's not, I didn't bring a puppy home, puppy dog home, Daddy. It's not, Daddy, I want a horse, or Daddy, I want something else. It's, oh, guess what, Daddy? I'm bringing home a Hebrew. You know, we're not told anything in Exodus about Pharaoh's response or Pharaoh's attitude or Pharaoh's demeanor about any of this. But can you just imagine with your imagination how that conversation went when Pharaoh's daughter comes home and says, Hey, Daddy, this is what this is what I did today. This is how my day went. And then somewhere along the line, Pharaoh was okay with it because after Moses' wing, he's brought into Pharaoh's household and he is raised in Pharaoh's household as he is one, like he's one of the children. How did she know he was people? Probably because he wasn't circumcised. Probably because he was... I don't know if he had been circumcised or not. By his appearance, by the fact that he's in the river, by the fact that the girl comes up and says, can I go get a woman to nurse him for you? And then the mother comes up. And so, and then I think it says, doesn't it say that? It says in verse 2, or sorry, chapter 2 and in verse 6. It says, when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So it says in chapter 2 and verse 6 that she knew it was a Hebrew child. And so she knew, she had to have known that her daddy said, kill them all. And now she's saying, except for this one. And then I would love to have heard the conversation that happened between daughter and daddy when daddy's saying, I've said to kill all the rest of them. And she's saying, but please daddy, please daddy. I don't, I don't know how the conversation went, but I mean, you, but. All that stuff, we, we go from Exodus chapter 2 to Exodus chapter 3 and we just quick, we just so quickly pass through that and we don't spend time to think about how all of the providence and the hand of God was on Moses even before Moses knew what God had for him to do. 
He was saved by God. Why do we know Moses? Because Moses was saved, was saved by God. And not just that, but he was prepared by God. And that's what it says that not only was he raised in Pharaoh's house, so he got an education. No doubt he probably learned. No doubt he was probably taught the sciences and the arts. So he had an a administrative mind. He had a business mind. He had all the things that you can imagine being raised in the king's court. But then he gets on the run and he ends up with Jethro and Midian. And he spends the next 40 years traversing through the wilderness. Now why would that be such a big deal? Any thoughts? Because it's the same wilderness that the people are going to traverse to on their way down to Mount Sinai. In fact, when he seeds the burning bush, God tells him, on this mountain, you're going to come back to me, and this is where I'm going to reveal myself to my people. So where we're at on Sunday mornings is we're at Exodus 19 on Sunday mornings. So when the people are at the base of the mountain, and you're going to see this this Sunday, and all the thunder and the, the lightning and the trumpet sound and all that stuff is going on, the mountain that the people are seeing this happening is the very same mountain that he was on when he saw the burning bush. So that whole wilderness that Moses spent 40 years ushering, not ushering, shepherding sheep around, that same wilderness is the same wilderness that he's now going to bring over a half a million people through on their way down to see God. So it's like the fact that he had spent all that time traversing, knowing the the lay of the land, if you will, knowing the landmarks, knowing the good places and the bad places. He had spent all his time, so then whenever he brings the people out of Egypt, he already knows this countryside. He already knows where he's at. I think that's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. Even before Moses was 80 years old, and even before God came to Moses and said, Moses, I have something for you, God was preparing Moses even when Moses didn't know that God was preparing him. I find that fascinating. And then you get to chapter 3 and verse 10, and you see God call Moses. It says in verse 10, in chapter 3, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Why do we know about Moses? We know about Moses because he is saved by God, he is prepared by God, and he was called by God. God said, this is what you're going to do, Moses. You're going to get my people. You're going to bring them out of Egypt. Had Moses heard those stories? Maybe. We don't know. But God is speaking audibly to Moses, saying, Moses, this is what I want you to do. And then as a result of that, you don't have to turn there, but you get over to chapter 34 of Deuteronomy again, and you see how God then used Moses throughout that season of life. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 34, it says this, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. For all the mighty power and all the great deeds of the terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. What he's saying there is that there is nobody greater that God used during this time of history than Moses. Some of you had already said that God had spoke to him 
face to face. He was a friend of God's. So why do we know Him? Yeah, all the things that we know He did, striking the rock once, striking the rock the second time. We're going to see that in a minute. Splitting the Red Sea, the manna, the quail, the leading around. At one point, you know, the plagues are coming. And at one point, he gets on a standoff between him and his first cousin, Korah. And he and Korah is questioning his leadership and Korah is questioning his rights. And he's like, hey, this is how you're going to know if something like, and he almost like he throws out a hypothetical, if something like the ground opens up and swallows you all that way, you'll know that I'm really the one that God wants to be in charge by the time the ground opens. Remember this? And it says Korah and all of his family and all their belongings just... Where'd they go? I don't know. All of a sudden the ground opened up. They all went in and the ground closed back up. He saw this and he did these things. He's the one that went up on the mountain more than once. Spent 40 days, 40 nights. No food, no drink. A guy can't live for more than what? Three or four days without water. Well, obviously, whenever you're doing what God wants you to do, you can because Moses did. He might have. He might have. Yes, ma'am. But it's the idea. Of, that's right. But it's the idea of not important. Yes, that's right. But it's the idea that we Yes, the reason why we know Moses is because God sustained him. And we think about all the things that God did through Moses. And we think about all the ways that God used Moses. So we have the stories about Moses, but there is so much else that is there about why do we know about Moses. Now, what lessons does Moses teach us? Think about who he was. We think about why do we know him. What are some lessons that he teaches us? Listens to God. That's right. And obeyed. And obeyed God. That's right. You personally have to ask questions. Yes. And then God conversed back and forth over. God gave him commands, and even when he didn't understand why he was doing it this way. That's right. So we were at kids' camp, and the pastor for the week, guy by the name of Matt Whitson. Um, we were having supper one night and he was telling me about going through a, just a, a time of struggle in ministry. And he said he finally got to the point that he realized that he didn't have to have it all figured out. The only thing he needed to think about was the next step of obedience. The next right thing. And so as long as he is just saying, God, what is the next right thing you want me to do? And focuses on that. He doesn't need to be trying to think about six months, six years, or 20 years down the road. Just what is the next right thing that God wants me to do? And he said it it really freed him up stress-wise. It really freed him up with worry. It really freed him up as far as trying to be all worked up about looking long-term. Just said, what is the next right thing that God wants me to do? I thought about that when I was thinking, thinking about Moses because you go to Exodus chapter 3 and you go to verse 10 and God says come 
I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Israel. You shall serve God on this mountain. Now, did God tell Moses everything that he was going to say to Pharaoh? No. Did God tell Moses everything that Pharaoh was going to say to him? No. Did God tell Moses at that moment all the plagues that were going to come? No. All he told Moses was, Moses, this is the next thing I want you to do. Why is that a lesson for us? It may not be a lesson for you, but it's a lesson for me. Because so many times I find myself saying, God, I'll be happy to obey you. I just need to know step 1 through 15. That way I know what I'm supposed to do. And sometimes we get hung up in taking that first step of obedience because we do not understand what step 2 through 15 is going to be. And until we figure out step 1 through 15, we're not willing to take step 1. And sometimes we get hung up because God has not called us to jump from step 1 to step 14. He has called us to take step 1. And sometimes we get hung up. We get hung up in taking that first step of obedience because we don't know the next steps that take on from that. And you and I go, but we can't do that. Well, the question is, is what is the next step of obedience that God has put in front of us? Take that step. Well, but I don't know what the next step is. Who cares? When I got married to Jaylene in 2005, There were a lot of things that I didn't know that I didn't know. Make sense? Yes. A lot of things that I didn't know that I didn't know. Now, if you would ask me, Spence, do you think you're ready to be married? I had enough I had enough sense to say, I don't know if I'm ready or not. But I also had enough sense to know that I don't think there would ever be another person that I'd want to spend the rest of my life with. So whether I know what's going to happen in 5 years, 10 years, or 30 years, what I do know is, is I am madly in love with this woman and we'll figure it out as we go. Yet I hear some of these young people today that you talk to them and they're like, well, we're not going to get married for another 3 years. Why? Well, we've got to get this done and this done and this done. We're just not ready to get married yet. And I find myself going, who, and and maybe some of you in this room, maybe you'll prove me wrong, but I wonder who in the world was ever ready to be married? I, I don't know of anybody that had it all figured out and knew all the answers to all the problems that would come up. Rather, I think there's some people that go, you know what, this is the best I got. I'm going to figure it out from here on out. Right? And so sometimes you just jump in. The same thing with having kids. Well, they don't want to have kids. They're going to wait to have kids because they're not ready yet. And I'm thinking, well, what does it look like to be ready? I don't understand what it looks like to be ready. Now, if you're you know, 14 years old and you're unmarried, then yeah, you're not ready. I'll, 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 I'll grant you that. But you know what? If you are the age that you can provide and care for and be a faithful husband or a faithful wife... What are you waiting on? I don't don't get it. Because even when Jaylene and I had the oldest one, Eli, was I ready whenever we had Eli? No. To have all the answers? No. Did I have his college already fully funded? 
No. No. A lot of that is you figure it out as you go. And yet in our Christian life, we come to God and say, God, I'll be obedient, but I've got to have it all laid out ahead of time. I need to have it all figured out. Otherwise, I don't feel comfortable taking that first step. God comes to Moses and he says, all right, Moses, I'm calling you. I'm going to send you back. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm sure, like Miss Carol said, there's probably more that got said that's not recorded in the Scripture. However, what does Moses do? He does the next step of obedience. He does the next thing that God put in front of him. And how many times, this is me, how many times have I stalled because I knew the next step, I just didn't know the step after that. But all of life is an exercise in all the job It is. It is. Sometimes, yes. But then there's other times, like my personality, if you say, Spence, we're going to take off and we're going to take off driving for the day. I'm going to say, where are we going? And if you looked at me and go, I don't know, we're just going to take off driving. I'm going to say, well, we'll take off driving when you can tell me where we're going. You know, because my personality is I want to know. I want to know where we're going because I want to know if we got enough gas. I want to know if we got enough time. I want to know if there's some place to stop and eat between here and there, okay? I mean, I've got lots of questions. And so sometimes, yes, it's, it's a journey of on-the-job training. But at the same time, there's a lot of times that we just got to say, what's the next step of obedience? And we take it. There's another lesson. I want you to see in Exodus 33. Skips quite a bit of the story. Exodus 32, you have the story of the golden calf. Remember back in the story of the golden calf, Moses is up on the mountain. He had been up there for 40 days receiving the Ten Commandments from God. While he is up there, Moses is down there with all the rest of the Hebrews. They saw that Moses had been gone for an extended period of time. They all come to Aaron and say, Hey, we don't know what happened to Moses. We want you to make us a God. And we're going to forget about the whole Moses guy. So, they take off much earrings. They smelt it down. They form a golden calf out of the precious metal. And they set it up. And they said, Alright, so these, this is now your God. And they started having a party. Had a big old festival. Had a big old shindig down there. And while Moses is up on the mountain, God says, Go down because they have broke out in idolatry and rebellion against me. So Moses comes down. He sees the people. Remember the Charleston Heston movie part in the movie? Right? He comes down. He sees Throws down the tablets. The tablets break. Aaron's like, ah, you know, I don't know what happened. It was kind of an accident. Take the golden cap. They grind it up. Throw the, the powder into the water. Make the people drink the water. Now you get to Exodus 33. They're getting ready to leave Sinai. And God says, okay, um, go ahead and leave. This is Exodus 33 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But... I will not go up among you, 
lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God comes to Moses. So all right, Moses, I promised you the promised land. Promised you what is now modern day Israel. Get the people. I'll send an angel to protect you. Go ahead, go on up and possess the land. But I'm, my presence is not going to go because you're a hard-headed, rebellious, disobedient, stubborn people. Now, you might think Moses was like, "Oh, that stinks." See you later. You might think Moses was like, well, you know, maybe when we get there, maybe we can reconcile when we get there. Who knows what Moses is going to do? Except for you see what Moses does when you get down to verse 12. <clears throat> Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. So Moses, even after God says go, Moses goes back to God and says, God, we do not want to go. We do not want to leave if you're not with us. Now what is the lesson for us out of that? So many times we are not asking the question of the presence, the favor, or the blessing of God. We don't seek that. We're not earnest for that. It's like we think that we can just do life without it. And we're not so much concerned about the favor or the indwelling or the blessing of God. Moses said, God, you have given us everything that you have promised. But if, you're, if you won't be with us, we do not want to be anywhere that you're not at. And now, for my personal life, there are so many times that it's like my life can go on with or without the presence of God. I can get up and I can eat breakfast. I can go to work. I can come home. I can chase kids around. I can go to bed. I can go to sleep. I can get up the next day. I can go through a routine and you can say, well, yeah, God's always there. I know God's always there, but how much of it is impacted or affected by desiring, petitioning, pleading for the favor, the blessing, the presence of God, if you will, in my life? Let me take another step further. What would it look like if we said on a Sunday morning, we were not going to start church until the presence of God fell upon this place. What if we just came together and said, we're going to pray, and we're just going to sit here and pray until we sense the presence of God fall upon this place. And then we'll begin church. What would that look like? It'd be awesome. It'd be awesome. But we have been so conditioned... Sunday school starts at 9.45. We don't come and say, well, are we going to prepare? Are we going to show up here at 6 a.m. to pray for three and a half hours, praying that the presence of God comes, and then if the presence of God isn't here at 9.45, we're going to keep praying. No, we just come. Sunday school's at 9.45. We start Sunday school. 
Morning service starts at 1045. We just come in. This is what we do. This is what we go. Some Sundays it feels like there was more of God. Some Sundays it feels like there was less of God. I'd like to say something. Yes. The Sunday, Sunday before last, when all the young people were back in the church, the Spirit of God washed over me at a hundred times. From what happened in, that, in this church that Sunday before I Yes. And the presence of God was very, very much there. Yes. Yes. And it was wonderful. And it's a great blessing. But it's one of those things that there's sometimes, it is, and sometimes we don't feel it all the time. We don't feel it all the time. And yet, the danger is, is we become accustomed without it. We, we can just go through the motions without it. And we can just get in a rut. The same thing happens in our personal spiritual walk. There are seasons of life that you and I feel like we're close with God. That we feel a intimate fellowship. We feel a sweetness in our relationship with God. And then there are seasons of life that we feel dry. We feel distance. We feel like we don't even we don't have any kind of connection or touch point with God anymore. There are those seasons of closeness and there's those seasons of distance. Here in the text, Moses says, God, I don't want to do anything unless you're right here in the middle of it. And I think that's a challenge for all of us on how much we desire and how much we are willing to give up for the presence of God. Moses said, I'll give up the promised land. I'll give up the future. I'll stay right here in the wilderness if that means I'm in your presence. I'll give up the big ranch. I'll give up the big house. I'll give up the big success. I'll give up the name recognition. I'll give up the comfort. I'll give up the ease. I'll stay here in the middle of nowhere just grinding it out if that means I am with you. That's an attitude that we that we struggle to have many times because we just learn to come up with a synthetic form of the presence of God. One more. I'm almost out of time. One more. This you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 17. One more lesson. Alright, so you get to Exodus 17. Remember the story. People are there in the wilderness. Don't have any water. Moses goes to God. God says what? Do what? Strike the rock, right? So that's Exodus 17 and verse 6. He said, Before I behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come after it. Alright? So that is Exodus 17. Now go to your right to Numbers, to Numbers chapter 20. Alright? So you get over to Numbers chapter 20. Deja vu happens. The people are there in the wilderness again. Don't have any water. And there is a rock. And it says in Numbers chapter 20. uh, Let's start in verse 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron and your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you should bring water out of the rock for them and give them a drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded. So, think back to Exodus 17, God said, take the staff, strike the rock. Numbers chapter 20, God says, take the staff, 
But instead of striking the rock, I want you to tell the rock. Big distinction. So, here in Numbers chapter 20, Moses is upset with the people. He's tired of their grumbling. He's tired of their belly aching. He's tired of everything, always being criticized and always being the bad guy. And it says there, um, verse 10 of Numbers chapter 20, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank, and their livestock. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So many questions I have for God and for Moses about this story. If Moses was supposed to tell the rock and not strike the rock. Then when Moses strike the rock, God could have said, no water. <laughs> not the right combination. Not the right procedure. He could have withheld water from coming out of the rock. That's right. right? But for whatever reason, God said, okay, I will still produce water out of the rock after you struck it. Second issue I've got is that why is it such a big deal between Moses hitting the rock and telling the rock. Disobedience. It was disobedience. And what he says in Numbers chapter 20, because you did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. In other words, this is what I put down, God does not compromise His holiness. Now, for me, I think God, you know what? I think Moses put up with enough. I think I think Moses dealt with enough stuff, right? Because you go back to Numbers chapter 12, and it's who? It's Moses and Joshua and Caleb that when they come to the promised land and they send in the 12 spies, remember? They send in the 12 spies, and the 12 spies come out. And the 10 of the 12 spies say, no, we can't do it. we got to turn around. And you got the two spies, Caleb and Joshua, say, yes, we can. And Moses is like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And then everybody rebels, and God brings judgment upon them and says, for the next 40 years, you're going to wander through the wilderness because you rebelled against me. Well, hold up a second, God. There were three people that not rebelled against you. Moses, Caleb, and Aaron. Or Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. And yet, for the next 40 years, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua spend the next 40 years wandering around the wilderness, right? Because they were disobedient? No! Because of the disobedience of the other people. And, while they're wandering through the wilderness for the next 40 years, what's happening? Everybody in their generation is dying out. So they got to wander through the wilderness for the next 40 years, watching all of their friends, their families, their cousins, their neighbors, everybody's falling over dying every single day. I mean, you think for the next 40 years, you've got 700,000 people that's got to die in 40 years. You do the math on that. There's a lot of dying going on. And who's going to be doing all the funeral services? Who's going to be doing all the arrangements? And so now you've got Moses, and you've got Caleb, and you've got Joshua, and they're spending the next 40 years in the wilderness, not because it was their fault, because it was these other people's fault, and then there are all these people are dying, and now they have all this bereavement. Think about all the family dinners you're having to put on for all these families as they're dying. I mean, it's just one of those things. You're just like... Rawr! And now you find yourself in your Moses... 
Moses deserves a pass. You know what? Moses was a little tired. Had a lot going on. But instead of telling the rock, he strikes the rock twice. And God says, eh. Well, it's... It's putting Moses in control instead of God. Yes. But so many times, we think that we can fudge the holiness of God. God does not compromise His holiness. So He was compromising... Because it doesn't matter. Yes, Moses was a friend to God. God spoke to Moses as a man talks to another man. Right? He would go out and meet with Moses. So it wasn't a matter of his intimacy, Moses' intimacy with God, or his faithfulness to God yesterday. It was the fact that Moses compromised the holiness of God. And God said, no. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how close we are together. I will not compromise. And then you get over to Deuteronomy 34. And it gets even more heartbreaking because they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And God says this to Moses. This is uh, Deuteronomy 32. And I'm going to start in verse 48. And that very day the Lord spoke to Moses. Aaron had already died. This is what God says to Moses. Go up on this mountain. Uh, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I have given to the people of Israel for possession, and die on the mountain which which you go up, and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Why? Verse 51. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, and the wilderness is in. And because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, for you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go up there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. So, Moses is 80 years old. He's in the Midian desert. Mind his own business. God comes to him. Moses needs to go back and get the people, bring him out of Egypt. Goes back. Okay? Spends the next 40 years playing babysitter with a bunch of whining, grumbling, discontent, ungrateful, constantly bickering and arguing and fighting. Never satisfied. And he spends all of this time for 40 years leading the people. And they get right to the edge of getting ready to go in. Everything that he has spent the last 40 years serving God for. And they get to the edge and God says, You can go up and you can look at it, but you're not going in. anger you think? Maybe. Well, he was so fed up with those people who were hungry and grumbling and everything, and you turn your back on them for a few minutes and you make a golden cat and start worshiping something else. And, yeah, anger. So I think you answered it when you said that 
Moses didn't think of God as getting all that. Right. I just, for me, I think there's so many times that I I take advantage of the holiness of God. So he says, um, he says to take the elders of Israel with you before he strikes the rock. Okay, so the elders of Israel um, were probably godly So him being disobedient in front of the elders could be an issue there. Sure. Is what I'm I just know there's times, you know, when God says, don't take my name in vain. And I take his name in vain. And that's a, taking advantage and abusing the holiness of God. Or when my children know what God's word says about being kind or loving or long-suffering or patience. (laughs) And then they don't see that in their daddy. I'm not upholding the holiness of God. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing back in 20 where he tells him you did not trust me and that to honor me as holy in this sight of the Israelites. And so him as being a leader... Having this personal relationship with God, and uh, it wasn't just affecting him, it was affecting all that he sent in front of him. He says it again when he was read out. That's part of my life, part of his punishment. Because he is a representative. The people look to him as a representative of God. So when he shows no respect and disobedience to God, then God says, that's not okay. Now here's where, this, here's where I think this comes down to us. And I'm out of time. There's a lot of people in this community that look to you and I as a representative of the kingdom of God. There's a lot of people in this community that know that you're a believer, that know you're a Christian, and they look to you as a representative and an example of what it looks like to be a faithful believer of God. So when they're looking at us, do they see the holiness of God displayed in our lives? See, God comes into Moses and Moses, you are going to be punished because you did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of all the people. And yet you and I will live lives that do not display the holiness of God. And I think there's a lesson for us in being reminded that God does not compromise His holiness. Now why do we have hope? We have hope because of Jesus. We have hope because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We have hope because of the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. We have hope because those sins have been paid. But, oh, we could always remember more the holiness of God and what the holiness of God should do, not only in our lives, but what people should see the holiness of God in our lives around us. Moe, over time. But, so many lessons we can learn from Moses. So many examples we can learn from Moses. So, anyways, appreciate you being here tonight. Uh, Sunday morning, 9.45, Sunday school, 10.45, morning service. Hope you'll come back and you'll uh, be a part of that and you'll join us as we gather again this coming Sunday. Harold, would you close us in a word of prayer, sir?